You are one who is called to flavor the earth with the flavor of heaven. That everywhere you go, you bring the taste of heaven down here to earth. Hey, my name is Katie Bulmer. I was your typical heartbroken and hungover sorority girl who looked for love in boys, Bacardi, and did I mention boys? After the breakup that broke me, I met the only man who can truly fulfill me. His name is Jesus. Shortly after that, I met my husband, the best example I have met of Jesus on this earth. Today, I have never been more sure I am right where I'm supposed to be on a mission to help today's young women find their life calling, stop dating dirtbags, and basically just be who I needed when I was younger. I've been called a big sis, an adopted mom, or my favorite title, a cool aunt. But however you think of me, get ready to be challenged and encouraged. This is the Truth For Your 20s podcast. Hello, my name is Katie, and this is the Truth For Your 20s podcast. Thank you for being here today. Today, you're in for a treat. I have with me a guest, Margaret Feinberg. She is the author of More Power To You, Declarations to Break Free from Fear and Take Back Your Life, and also has some incredible truths as it relates to food and the Bible and how God made all of that stuff and why it matters and what we lose in translation from our modern day reading to you know American culture and back then and so many incredible things. And I can't wait for her to unpack all of the goodness. So welcome to the podcast, Margaret. Katie, what a joy to be with you. This is truly a privilege. Yay. Well, thank you for being here. I want to um, unpack all of the goodness, but I guess just to start, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about your passions, what you're doing now? Yeah. You know, I have been writing for almost 25 years and I absolutely love it. And a few years ago, I think you touched on a book I wrote called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. And I'm one of those people who's like a Dora the Explorer when it comes to the Bible. I don't just want to read it. I want to taste and touch and smell and experience the fullness of it. So this led me on this wild journey to really take a look at food in the Bible, not not a diet book, not a, you know, eat this, don't eat that, none of that. But like, what is the richness of a God who loves us so much that he would, you know, fill us with tens and tens of thousands of taste buds on our tongues, that we would be able to literally taste and see the goodness of God all around us. Yes. And what I loved about that book is you know, in our modern day, when we hear salt in the Bible, we're like, oh, you mean Morton salt, like the girl with the umbrella? <laughs> and you're like, no, there's so much more to that. And we think of bread, like, oh, you mean the nature's own that comes from the, the in the package from the grocery store? Like, no, there's so much more to that. So I would love to just kind of, if you can, what did you find on your Dora Explorer journey, as you called it, when it relates to food and the Bible and all the things? Yeah, what I discovered is that if you start to look for food in the Bible, you will soon discover that it pops and sizzles on almost every page. From the opening of Genesis, where we peruse through the garden with the original couple noshing and nibbling on raspberries and tangerines and olives, all the way to the closing of Revelation, when God in the great big city places a river, and what does he place there but 
fruit trees with edible leaves and fruit for the healing of the nations. And we start to look through and we discover that when Jesus comes, what does he reveal himself as basic food stuff? I mean, he's the bread of life. Uh, you know, he is the, the, the vine. He is the living water. And, and so my hunch as I began to study is that God of all people is the original foodie. And so with so many mentions of food in the Bible, I knew that I needed to narrow my search. And so I started to identify six foods of the Bible. And I sought out the people who plant and process and procure them, not people with large manufacturing, you know, chemically induced for maximum growth kind of kind of uh, research areas, but people who are more artisanal in nature, people who took such pride and care in the products they were producing. And so this journey led me to go fish in the Galilee, to pluck figs with a the premier fig farmer in America in Madrid. Moderna, California. I traveled to uh, to McKinney, Texas, where I spent time with a butcher who calls himself the Meat Apostle. I even tracked down the head of the Yale Divinity School, who happens to be an expert on ancient grains. I cold called him, introduced myself, and said, hi, my name is Margaret Feinberg, and you've never heard of me, but could I come to your house to bake bread for an afternoon? Wow. And with each of these individuals, I opened up the Bible and I asked, how do you read these passages, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day. And their answers change the way that I read the Bible forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in the church? How have I studied the Bible? How have I listened to so many sermons and podcasts? And nobody has told me these things. And so that began the foundation for a book and Bible study called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food makers. I love it. You really are Adora the Explorer. Like I <laughs> I love that you cold called a artisan was it the bread maker you said? Yeah, he's just, he's an expert on ancient grains and his kitchen, it was amazing. He had like, he, I remember going into his pantry and, and he collected, I mean, he collected flour from around the world. Like he said, like some people collect power tools. Awesome. I mean, he had all kinds of barleys and grains and, and just, just stacks and stacks is from the ceiling to the floor. I just never even recognized. And he pulled out a couple and that afternoon he began to just, just explain to me, you know, grain in antiquity, which is very different than so much of the highly processed grain that so many of us are exposed to today. Yeah. Okay. Well, could you like unpack some of these? I I know that there's so many, like you said, you know, figs and bread and salt. Those are some things that I remember, but well, let's, can we just take one of them? Like bread, like you were explaining, what did the artisan bread maker teach you about the Bible that you missed all those years? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. What I never realized is that if you go back and you study in Bible culture, that bread was often the food of the poor. And so if you were the vast majority of the population during the time in the Roman Empire when Jesus lived, uh, and during those empire states, what you would discover is the basic diet was bread, bread, and more bread. And so 
that's all you ate and that's all you had to eat. And so if you had a little bit of a fish sauce or maybe a little bit of a fruit compote to dip the bread in or a little bit of water with, with just any sort of, you know, little spice that you could find, that is what people survived on. And so the grain at that time, it wasn't highly processed like today, but, but what happened is that the, the poor often ate barley. That was the food of the poor. That was the grain of the poor. And the really expensive flour was was the more white, refined, or lighter in color. And, and so the wealthy would have access to that. So for instance, when Jesus was standing out on a hill surrounded by t- tens of thousands you know, in the crowd or 5,000 or however many impressed in, and, and in that day, they only counted the men, they didn't count the women and the children. And the disciples look at him and they say, hey, you know, these guys, whoa, low blood sugar all around. We got to get them something to eat. And, and Jesus is like, no, no, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are trying to empty out their their bags. They don't have a cliff bar. They don't have anything. There's nothing going on. And this little boy shows up and he shows up with a few fish and he shows up. And it's very important. The gospel notes this with barley bread. And so immediately everybody in that culture in that day knew that this was a kid from the other side of the tracks. This was not a rich kid presenting his, what he had. And it really wasn't his lunchbox. That was most likely the food of the entire family. In other words, they had sacrificed to allow their child to eat. And that child had gone forth and given up his food. And the barley denotes it, it was it was everything to them. And then Jesus takes it and he multiplies it and he gives it. Um, and, and so you start to see these passages as you understand the, the references to grain in the Bible. For instance, in the book of Revelation, it, it talks about... Um, at one point in great economic injustice, that barley will cost twice as much or four times as much and the different flowers that are mentioned there. And what it's saying is this will be an excessively heaven heavy burden of economic injustice on the poor. And so once you start to understand the grains, it starts to bring scriptures alive. For instance, in the Old Testament, when it talks about giving a grain offering, this wasn't just a little smattering of flour. This what you were offering up. Like for instance, you know, once it was burned, you were, you were giving it up. You were giving up your meal. You were giving up your daily provision, trusting that God would be your provider for you. Wow. See, I almost got a little teary you talking about that because, you know, I've heard the story of the loaves and the um, the fish and the loaves a million times, but I didn't know it was a poor kid. I didn't know that, you know, that was his whole family's. I mean, you think about like, <laughs> we go to Costco and come back with a truckload of stuff. And just for example, say my whole grocery trip, that would be that. that I mean, I'm trying to wrap it around to my modern day, what that would look like. And, and not even that, it would be my whole month's income and my whole, um, I don't even have a plan B if all of that, you know, was, was eaten up and he offers that and Jesus multiplies that, that like gives me all the feels. <laughs> it's I- pretty, I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. When you think about it, I mean, here is Jesus and he reveals himself in this culture. Okay. By the way, let me give you a little bit more background. So in antiquity, often, you know, uh, everything was dependent on the, the sun and the harvest and the weather and the season. And so in a bad year, there was no backup plan like what you're saying. There's no Costco around the corner. They were completely dependent on God for the sun, the rain, the the lack of pestilence or the pestilence that came that God would provide for them. They knew hunger. There are times that are described in antiquity when they didn't have enough flour. And so what they would do is they would actually try to provide filler by going and picking grass. 
in order to multiply so there was enough food to eat. And here is Jesus, the very Son of God, who comes and reveals himself as the bread of life. Bread of life. Boom. It makes a lot more sense when you say it that way. It does. And so he is revealing himself as the nourishment, the sustainer, the provider, the, the future of all things. And for us in our modern culture, so many of us, you know, have gluten intolerances. We go on low carb diets and Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life. We're like, eh, I don't know. Nice imagery. I, you know, and yet for them, the bread was life. It was daily life. And so when they, you know, we pray, Father, give us this, our daily bread. Again, it is proclamation for on dependence on God for all things. You're blowing my mind because let me say if my synopsis is, is right. So he, Jesus says he's a bread of life, which in those days meant um, the the sun and the rain cooperated well. There was no bugs. Eat, there's no locusts eating the, the grains. Everything worked out for you to have this bread so you can eat and your whole household will survive because you have this bread, meaning this bread is everything. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Is, is that, am exactly. I understanding that correctly? <laughs> exactly. And if we just, we can just like go a little further here, just go a little deeper. So imagine this. So in antiquity, you didn't go down to the flower store or the grocery store and pick up a bag of flour. You planted your seed. You went out, you tilled the land. Israel is known for its really kind of harsh, often uh, a soil. And so you remove all of the stones. You plant the seeds. You pray for the rain because there's no irrigation system largely. You wait for God to provide the rain. The, the, the wheat grows up. You then bring in the harvest, but now you have to harvest it. So you're going through, you're cutting it down. You're processing it. You're beating it. You're separating the wheat from the shadow. You're going through then because you really don't often have the ability to grind your own wheat. In a lot of the communities, there was a place that you went and you ground the wheat. And it wasn't really refined and clean today. So often there'd be a little bit of pebbles or dirt in it. And so you'd pay a percentage of that flour to the, the manager or the owner of the wheat processing in order to get your wheat. Then you would come home. You would mix it up. You would wait for it to rise using not yeast like we buy today, but the natural yeast that is just found within the air, almost like a sourdough bread. You go through all of that. And in those days, you didn't have your own oven. Uh, there was a communal oven within the community because ovens were really inefficient. It would mean every person would have to go cut down all of their own firewood, often in places there wasn't enough. So it'd be one particular oven in the community and you would go and you would take your small loaf after doing all of those things and you would have a little insignia that represented you and your family and you would put it on the bread. Why? Because everybody else in that community is sticking in all of their bread. So if yours isn't marked, you don't know whose you're pulling out. And at this point you realize that bread is like gold. It yeah. is life. And so you then recognize by the mark, which is your bread, and then you bring it home. So now we go back to the story of Jesus on the mountain type, so top, surrounded by thousands and thousands of people, the disciples saying, we got to send these people away to go get food. And, and Jesus looking at them and saying, you give them something to eat. It's not just they don't have food. They don't have time to go plant seeds, harvest, yeah. wait, but, you know, all of the different steps. And then Jesus, the very bread of life comes and multiplies this humble barling, barley offering. 
And what mind-blowing amazingness to them, but also to us. Because we look in the places in our own lives where we see our weaknesses, we see our lack. We look and we go, but I'm not of that socioeconomic. I'm not of that cultural background. I'm not of that education level. I'm not of fill in the blank of that. I don't have those looks. I don't have that. And yet that is the place where Christ works his most profound miracles and most importantly reveals himself to us as our provider and our sustainer in all things. You're blowing my mind. And I've never heard this <laughs> in my years of you know studying scriptures and going to church myself. And you're right. Like I've heard the bread of life. Cool. That means, you know, like he's important. He sustains but not to that level. Like that is, I don't even know if we have a modern day example, like all the money you have in the bank, maybe. I mean, I, I don't even, but we don't even have a Costco. We don't have the seeds and the bread and the, like you said, you know, okay, we don't have any food, but in today's culture, yeah, well, here's 20 bucks, run to the store. Not like even harder than that. <laughs> like this is yeah. amazing. <laughs> You're blowing my mind. Um, okay, so there's that. <laughs> And I love, I can go back to this. You said your Dora Explorer journey, because I really think that that's a perfect example that you really, you know, dug deep to uncover all of this. You blew my mind with the bread thing. I wonder if you can unpack another one. Is there one particular, like, you know, you said the salt and the figs and the, the other things. Is, yeah. there, is there another, you know, area of food that just totally rocked your world as it did mine recently? <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think for me, another one that really surprised me was salt because in the gospel, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you are the salt of the earth. And I thought, cool, cool. Salt, salt. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, you know, I I don't know ancient grains, but I know salt. It's on my table. But as I dug in and I began to look at salt in the Bible, I realized that it, it is literally sprinkled throughout the Old Testament and the New. There were salt offerings just as there were grain offerings. In antiquity, often salt was, uh, was, was, was thrown or displayed when people would buy or sell land as a symbol of an oath that this was part of the commitment that they were making. And what's interesting is salt that we look at today often in our tables that just come from, you know, as you described the, the Mortons with the little girl with the raincoat and the umbrella, you know, that is not the salt that was being passed around in antiquity. Because remember, that salt was actually taken about around the mid 1920s. And, and it was fortified with iodine so that people who had goiters or these large gross, it would help them with their health. And so it's chemically processed, it's a really refined form of salt. But in Jesus's day, the salt was primarily came from just a couple of places. One were salt mines uh, that are found throughout Israel. The second is dehydrated from the Dead Sea. And the third is from the Mediterranean Sea, where it was also harvested and dehydrated. And if you go to Israel, you can find places, you know, that are still marked where they did these things. Uh, but, but when Jesus was saying, you are the salt of the earth, he wasn't talking about that chemically um, processed. He was talking about the more organic, natural forms. And so to better understand it, I actually went to a salt mine about an hour and a half south of where I live in Utah, where a salt mine is essentially an 
ancient seabed that is frozen in time. And I was invited to get in the company truck and drive more than 410 feet down into the salt mine. And I remember when we got to the this place, there was a huge drill in front of us and the lights flickered and the drill stopped. And we climbed out of the truck and it was like snowing salt. And when you breathed in, it almost smelled like an ocean. And being a lover of all things Costco and free samples, I, I reached down and I took a just a little sample of the salt. And it was interesting because it didn't taste like other salt I had. It, it almost had like a sweet finished. And, and as I went to the edge of the cave and of the side of the wall, I remember my hostess took his hand and he wiped away the thin layer of dust. And what I saw was mesmerizing beauty. It was like almost like red rubies and this quartz all mixed together and the soft pink garnets. And what he began to explain is that salt in its original form is not sodium chloride, but actually the salt is mixed with dozens and dozens and in this particular salt mine, 70 different minerals. And so the brown uh, is the magnesium, the reddish hues come from the iron. And so when mixed together, it has this beautiful appearance. And when you grind it up, it looks like a pink Himalayan salt. And so as I came out of that, that, that salt mine, what I realized is that when Jesus was saying to you and I, you are the salt of the earth. It's not the chemically altered, purified form that whatever form that was coming from in Israel, what Jesus was saying is that you are hewn with the natural minerals, the natural background that that, you, that, that God shaped you with, that, that you were given a certain personality, certain strengths, certain weaknesses, certain quirks, certain family heritage, mm. certain backgrounds. And just as salt is hewn with all of its natural minis- minerals, so you and I have been hewn by God with our natural backgrounds and that Christ wants to use all of that as he pours us out as the salt of the earth. And so when Jesus says, you know, you are the salt of the earth, I believe he is saying, first of all, you know, you are a flavoring agent. You are one who is called to flavor the earth with the flavor of heaven, that everywhere you go, you bring the taste of heaven down here to earth. But he was also saying that is you as the salt of the earth, you are also a preserving agent. Just as salt can be put in thin slices of meat and fish and that meat and fish that once went bad in 24 or 36 hours, now as salt can be preserved for 24 or 36 months. So too, you as the salt of the earth are meant to be a preserving agent in this culture. To preserve what? To preserve the ways, the teaching, and the life of Christ. But there's something else, because if you start to look at Jesus' teaching, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, he he describes that, that, that we are called to be the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing. It is not good for the soil or even the manure. And I always read by that passage and I thought, what is, what is Jesus talking about salt having to do with soil or manure? Well, it turns out that if you take salt, not the sodium purified form, but natural salt with its minerals, and you go out, and I don't know about you, but I have a little dog and it's snowy here, and, and he goes out and he goes potty. And in the spring, let's just say my little dog leaves little kisses everywhere in the yard. Well, if I'll go out and I'll take a little bit of natural salt and put it on that manure, it will cause the manure to break down in such a way that the surrounding flourish uh, light, the surrounding vegetation 
comes alive. And so what happens is that salt actually can help with the manure and with the soil to help bring it alive, which is why uh, if you go down to, for instance, Home Depot or your local uh, store and you get fertilizer, it will often include sodium in it. And so when Jesus says that you are called to be the salt of the earth, I think he's not just saying you are called to be a preserving agent or a flavoring agent, but you are called to be an agent of human flourishing. That you are called to go into the stinky and the difficult and the hard, hard areas, but it's in that place that as you are poured out, that Christ is going to bring new life. Girl, you're blowing my mind. Um, and what is so crazy is this written to first century Jewish people, you hear, you're the salt of the earth. Oh, you mean that I am a flavoring agent. You mean that I um, am preservative and that I have all these different backgrounds because of the salt, like all the different elements within me, my background, who I am and my, my story matters and it can help, you know, preserve and, um, sorry, what was my other flavor? (laughs) So it made perfect sense to them. But to us, we're like, cool, salt of the earth. And like, this is so valuable, this information. I want to put this, your book into the hands of everyone ever. (laughs) Are you in a sorority or interested in joining one? I want to tell you about Greek InterVarsity. It is a national Christian ministry for fraternity and sorority students. Greek IV truly believes that you can be Greek and be a Christian, and they want to show you how. Greek University offers leadership training, conferences, retreats, and they even have a podcast, the Greek and Christian Podcast, all of which help you thrive in your faith and Greek life. This month in August, Greek University is offering a special promotion where the first 100 people who subscribe to the Greek University will receive a free copy of a little book your homegirl Katie wrote called Sorority Girls Can Change the World. So all you have to do is go to greekiv.org. Fill out the contact form to get your free copy of my book today. Legit, I wish this existed when I was in college. Greek IV is doing amazing things. I've had the opportunity to meet some people behind the scenes. They are so Jesus-focused and cool and relatable and fun and make sure you make the most of your college experience. Greek IV is where faith and Greek life intersect. So go check it out, greekiv.org. Advice. Everything I hear most often when I have mentoring calls and putting it in one easy to digest course. It's called From Heartbreak to Happily Ever After and it is available now. I taught a similar style course back in January. I got your feedback. I learned some and I put this together in four different modules, walking you literally from a heartbreak to a healthy relationship. We're going to talk about healing from hurt, loving your single life, chemistry, infatuation, and have a shame-free discussion on sex. And then 17 things I've learned in 17 years of marriage. I put a lot of research into each module and I pray this content will help change your dating life for the so much better. If you've never been through a heartbreak, it still applies. You can just skip the first one and go ahead to the dating and loving your single life. If you are in a relationship, this also applies to you because it helps you find a healthy relationship. Evaluate where you are, where you want to go, and how to get there. Find all the information on my website or on Instagram. That's at Katie Bulmer Life. And Truth For Your 20s listeners get to save 10% at checkout. Um, 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting, even in that note of just the surprises. I remember when I looked at, I came home, actually, my host was really sweet and sent me a, a, sent me home with a piece of the salt from the salt mine. And it has these brownish and these reddish hues and this white all kind of mixed together. And when I looked at it, there's kind of some dark places in that, that salt. And I remember thinking, Ooh, who wants to, who wants that? Like that's unappealing. And what my host uh, explained to me is he said, do you know that here in Utah, the chefs from around the state will call and they will ask for those darker areas because that's the area where the minerals are the most concentrated. And they know that if they use that salt in the dishes they're cooking, it will actually bring out the highest and the lowest notes in the dishes that they're serving. And I don't know about you, but I know that in my own life, I have dark areas. I have those places that I want to cut out that I think, man, there's no way that God could use that. But in the same way, it is often those darker areas, those places of pain, those places of woundedness, sometimes those places that we want to run away from that Christ wants to use as a flavoring agent to help bring healing and hope to others. And that Christ wants to use all of us just as we are, not as the someones we're trying to be, that when we achieve or we accomplish or we, you know, gain so many Instagram followers or we do this or that. No, no, no. Just as as you are, Christ wants to use you and pour you out for his kingdom and for his purposes. That you're making me teary. Like, yes, like the, the parts of us that we're like, oh yeah, but you don't know what I've done and you don't know my past and you don't know my broken places. That's the most attractive. That's the part that can be used so well. Like you said, the chef's like, I want the broken places. I want the yucky parts, so to speak, that where, you know, someone might turn their nose up and know that is what can be used um, to put it on a bumper sticker, so to speak. I've heard it said, your mess becomes your message. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Your deepest pain can become God's richest content and invitation to transformation for others. Well, I heard you on the Annie F. Downs podcast talking about all of this. And I was like, this girl is amazing. And I just, I, Wow, I'm so thankful for you to share all of this. But um, you wrote this book, Taste and See, and it's amazing. But you also have a new book that um, is it already out? It is. It just released. I'm super excited. Yay. Okay. So tell us about your work behind this book. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but this past year has been a rough year, I think for everyone. And and if it wasn't rough for you, I'll just say, wow, congratulations. <laughs> You're one of nine people on planet Earth. <laughs> but all of the challenges that we've been walking through in so many ways and even coming out of those challenges. And so I wrote a book called More Power to You, Declarations to Break Free from Fear and Take Your Life Back. And what I was is I was just in a place in my own life where where I just felt so discouraged and beat down. I was just struggling so hard. And honestly, I was doing all the things like I was, you know, with, with healthy people, I was exercising, I was trying to eat right. I was reading my Bible, I was praying. And yet I was just just in such a dark place. You know, I'm taking my medication, I'm meeting with my counselor, and I just I could not break through no matter what. And I remember I was sitting down and having friend, uh, lunch with a friend and he looked at me and he said, Margaret, I don't know when and where it happened, but somewhere along the way, you have made agreements with the universe that are not true. 
And I thought, whoa. At first, honestly, I recoiled. I thought, what are you talking about? And what do you mean by making agreements with the universe that are not true? I mean, that sounds a little (sighs) woo-woo. And he began to explain how where I'd once started out with this sense of optimism and hope and joy and life and ministry, over the last few years, he'd just seen it erode away. And as I thought about it, I realized that I was right. And I remember I came home from that lunch and I just said, Jesus, where, where am I? Where am I making agreements with the universe? And, and more importantly, not just with the universe, but, but with that which is untrue. And I, I came home and I pulled out a piece of paper and I just started writing down just some of the, the things that I was believing. And honestly, there were things that I think a lot of us can, can wrestle with, like things like, you know, it's only a matter of time until the other shoe drops Mm. or thoughts like I'm not enough or I'm too much, or this is never going to get better or I'll never experience breakthrough or I'm just stuck or getting older is the worst or there's no way I can do this. And what I realized is these thoughts had spun around so much that they had begun to paralyze me. They left me just kind of bent over and just like scared of what was going to happen instead of hopeful for the future. And I sat there with this list of these lies that I had begun believing and just said, Holy Spirit, help help me to see them and, and please forgive me. Forgive me for believing these things that are so not what you say about who I am and what I'm called to. Forgive me and set me free. And um, I remember I looked at that list. And I thought, man, I've got I've to start looking at things differently. And so I started going to the scripture and picking out scriptures that really kind of combated all those lies that I had come to believe. And I started to handcraft this list of daily declarations that are deeply rooted in scripture and just say them out loud. And they were declarations like this. Jesus is king of my life. I am who Christ says I am. I take every thought captive. I break every agreement that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. My purpose is to love, serve, glorify, and enjoy God forever. Shame is not my master. God's power is perfected in my vulnerability. And as I begin to take about 90 seconds a day and just say these out loud, I remember my husband came to me, Leif, my bestie, three days later, and he said, Margaret, I do not know what has happened, but you are lighter and freer than I have seen in months. Wow. And man, I just started this practice and and doing this. And I eventually wrote this book that, that, that identifies each of the lies and, and gives you the 90 second declarations each day. And the devotions start to unpack these false beliefs and how they enter us. But, but what I started to notice was that, you know, I started to do this before the pandemic hit. I had a list of declarations pinned on my bathroom mirror and above my toilet paper roll in the back of my Bible. And, and, and it was important for that season. But as we went into the pandemic, it became even more crucial because there is this thing that happens and, and brain scientists talk about it, that we can have a thought and it may sail by, but we can allow that negativity to pass by. But then sometimes we take that thought and we begin to acknowledge it. And then we entertain it. And then we cross that spiritual threshold in which we come into agreement with it. 
And what can happen in brain science is that you start to go to that thought again and again. You go to a path to that thought. You know, it's only a matter of time till that other shoe drops. It's only a matter of time until I get another C. It's only a matter of time until I get another job rejection. It's only a matter of time until my boyfriend dumps me. Whatever that is. And you can go to that thought so many times that what happens is your brain films not forms not just a path, but it becomes a road and a super highway. And part of the reason that happens is because your body is designed for efficiency. And so actually for your brain, the least amount of calories spent is going to the same thought. And so if it's a negative thought, you're going to keep going there. And yeah, the, the, the Romans describes it and the apostle Paul writes that we have the ability to tear down every thought, to take every thought captive. And what's amazing is through brain science, God gave us this ability that we don't have to keep going to those negative thoughts. We can begin building new paths, new roads, new superhighways in a completely different direction by using God's word, by making these daily declarations. So in the midst of, of fear and anxiety, we still rise up and say, uh-uh. Jesus is king of my life. I am who Christ says I am. Okay, this is so good. I, gosh, yes, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I do mentoring with young women and I've researched some of this stuff and I absolutely love everything you're saying. Um, one of the ways I put it is telling yourself what is true. And essentially, you know, when you get caught up in, well, everyone has a better life than I do and everyone is more this and more that and I am not enough, yada, yada, yada. Like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> Tell yourself what is true. You know, am I loved? Am I surrounded by goodness? Are there good things right here, right now? Because finding things that are good right now, you're stealing away the joy of right now when you're fearing what could be, right? Um, but anyway, I want you to just talk about one of the things that you do is t- taking those lies and replacing them with biblical truths. And this is biblical, right? It talks about um, renewing our mind. So what's a practical way to do that? Is I mean, you have these mantras and stuff, but are there, I guess, just walk us through that process. Yeah, absolutely. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this false belief. I know I have, and that is I'm supposed to be all things to all people. Ever felt that? I mean, I am a classic people pleaser. And what I've noticed is so many of us, I know myself, like I struggle with supposed to itis. Like I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to stay late. I'm supposed to show up early. I'm supposed to make the 127 cupcakes from scratch. I'm supposed to, supposed to, supposed to, supposed to. And and at the core of that is kind of, if we're really honest about it, it it can seem like kindness, but often in what we're doing and how we're feeling that guilt and how we're going above and beyond to our own cost, often to our own detriment, sometimes to our own health, is this drivenness to be liked and loved by all people Mm. and to make everything okay when when that's not our role. We're not the Messiah. We can't, we have to put down our cape and say there is only one Savior. It is it is Christ. And so when we start to feel that weight of supposed to itis, and the way you know it is when you volunteer to do something and then you regret it or feel a little resentment afterwards, that little tinge of, oh, I can't believe I did that, but now I have to because I said to. I think one of the practical ways that we can break out of that is when somebody asks you to do something, you don't have to give them a response right away. You can say, hey, I need a night to think on that. Hey, I need time to look at my calendar because just because your calendar has an open spot doesn't mean it's open. 
In other words, you need to be have time for you to rest, to rejuvenate, to be working out of a place of fullness that you're not giving your scraps and your used Kleenex of a self to others, but you're giving a fullness and a wholeness and a health and making sure that your needs are met because what you're going to give out of that is so much better. So one of the declarations that I have is my purpose is to love God. And so when we start saying that, we go, my purpose is to love God, not to become the happiness factory for everyone around me. And that when my purpose is to love God and I begin centering myself on that, then I'm freed up to take time and pray and say, God, I really love you. But is this really what I'm supposed to be saying yes to? And stop that automatic knee jerk to just doing and filling a need. Because friends, the need is not the call. And if you will allow that phrase to settle deep into your soul, you will walk in a whole new level of freedom and lightness every day. Say it again. The need is not the call. There are 10 million needs around you each and every day. Go on social media. You've got 43,000 things to donate to. Look around in your community. You've got 10,000 things to give your time. The need is not the call. What is Christ uniquely calling, nudging, leading you toward? And when you stop that knee-jerk response to just saying yes to everyone around you, I think you're going to discover that maybe Christ has some other assignments and some other things up his sleeve that you're going to love and be even more fruitful doing. Girl, you're stepping on my toes in all the best ways. I agreed to something today that I didn't have time to do. (laughs) So yes, this is so good. Um, another thing we haven't talked about yet, and that I think is very powerful is the false belief basically of, well, the way you put it is I'll never recover from this. And you have very real, uh, hands-on experience, so to speak with your cancer journey. And how have you reframed your thinking as it relates to that? And all of the incredible, I guess, crash course and life lessons you have learned from that. Yeah, you know that thought, I'll never recover from this. I think a lot of us, we carry that in different sizes and ways and packages. And so for me, it was a cancer battle. But I would imagine for some of you who are listening, you may be looking at your childhood. You may be looking at the absent father. You may be looking at or thinking about that man who pinned you down or that woman who pinned you down and you couldn't get up. And what they did to you was unspeakable. You may think about those cruel words that were spoken to you that no human should ever have to hear, that place you had to escape from, that thing that you're still healing and dealing with now. For me, mine was cancer, and it was so easy in the midst of chemotherapy, radiation, five surgeries, brutal treatments, uh, a poor physical response, thinking, I am so beat down, I am so hopeless, I will never recover from this. And I remember in the midst of that, I I had a thought pop into my mind that was not my own. And I want to be very clear, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but there are characteristics to the way that God will speak to you. One of the natures of God's voice is that it will always align with scripture. And if what you sense God speaking to you does not align with scripture, you need to check it far, far out back. Secondly, the things that Christ and the Holy Spirit whisper to you, and it often appears in the form of a thought that pops into your head that is not your own, is will always cause you to either love God or love others more, and possibly both. Third, something I've noticed is that God does not tend to speak in long run-on sentences, but he'll often use an image or a word, 
and, and to someone else, it won't mean anything, but to you, it will mean everything. And the thought that popped into my head in the midst of all of that was I sensed the Holy Spirit say, you can either cling to the crisis or you can cling to Christ, but you do not have arms big enough for both. In the midst of being surrounded by hospital treatment, doctors, researching on the internet, trying to find ways just to survive this aggressive, awful disease. That was taking up all of my time and all of my days. And I just said, Lord, how do I do that? How do I begin to identify? How do I cling to you and the promise that you have? And what came to mind was Jeremiah 29, 11, that passage many of you have heard that talks about God having a hope and a future for us. And it's hard to have a hope and a future when you're so sick that you can't even walk across your living room. But I remember in the midst of that thinking, man, I, I don't have strength that there's a hope or a future. But I remember looking up at the walls in our house and there were these 80s peach color. And I thought, man, what if we got some new paint and started painting the walls in our house? And I remember... We did this and all of a sudden, like in our lives, we had something else to think about other than just the crisis and the medical. We had something else to talk to friends about other than the crisis and the medical. We were putting the pin in the fact that God had a hope and a future. I remember one of my husbands, I looked at him and I said, man, you need a hope and a future. And he said, you know what I want to do? And I said, what? He goes, I want to go swim Alcatraz. And I remember thinking, what? The goal here is to stay alive, buddy. The goal is to stay alive. But he began training for that. And all of a sudden, people are asking him about other things other than the disease. And we're starting to think, okay, God has a hope and a future. And he's getting in shape. And he's focusing on that. And one day, he went out and he raced that race. And he finished in the top three in his age category. And it was awesome. But sometimes in that situation where you feel so trapped, and that, that crisis point becomes all you are clinging for. You have got to pry your fingers free and begin clinging to the hope that is only found in Christ and find a new rallying cry outside of the crisis that you can begin working for, that you can begin getting friends on your team to go and do that and see the life and the flourishing and the renewed sense of joy that God has for you in practicality. Girl, uh- I think you win the record of making me get all the feels and all the tears with every word. This is so good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So is it just two books that you have? I have many more. I was about to say, you probably have 700. (laughs) (laughs) But for your listeners who want to learn more, yeah, grab a copy of Taste and See or More Power to You if you're looking for a devotional just begin diving in. I mean, God has such good things up his sleeve for you. He has such riches. His promises to you are true. I know some days it's really hard. I know some days for you listening right now, some days it is just hard to get oxygen in your lungs and to crawl out of bed. But there is a God who wants to meet you in that. And and it's not just a pray and play. Like it's not just a spiritual, you know, let me just pray once and this is going to go away. But, But he really... He really does. And some of you listening right now, I just sense the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, you're going to have to fight for your health. You really are. You're going to have to fight to go seek the tools that you need through counseling or medication or reaching out again and looking to surround yourself with healthy friends. But as you pray for these things, as you seek them, God is going to provide them. And it is healing and it is beautiful. And I am just hopeful and celebratory over you. Margaret, this has been incredible. I want to ask you one closing question that I feel like 
It's probably going to be amazing because everything you say is, but if you could have coffee with your 20 year old self and now put pressure on you, it can be whatever you want. But if you could have coffee with your 20 year old self, what would you say? Hmm. Friend, this is just the beginning. I know things feel a little extra heavy right now. Every decision will determine the outcome of your entire life and future. I know that you think maybe this one guy is the one, and if this doesn't work out, there's nothing more. I know there's times that you think that when you walk in that room and you feel awkward or you feel offbeat or you feel like you don't fit, that it's always going to be that way. But none of that is true. You are just beginning this incredible journey of growing and maturing into who Christ has created you to be. And what's amazing is that God has packed and he has placed so many incredible treasures inside of you. You have no idea what he is going to reveal in and through you over the years to come. It is so good. You are made in his image. You are created to shine like the stars of the sun. And over the next few decades, you're going to see that more and more and become more comfortable in your own skin, more confident in who you are, healthier in who you're created to be. And whew, good things are coming for you. Preach it, sister. Oh my gosh. Well, you guys, we are going to link her book, Taste and See, and more power to you in the show notes. But make sure you look her up on Amazon because there's a lot more goodness where that came from. Margaret, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this with me. Um, I know just for me, I enjoyed this conversation so much and I feel quite confident our friends on the other side of the earbuds did too. I'm over here giving you a virtual hug because you just finished another episode of the truth for your twenties podcast. Would you help a sister out and take a screenshot right wherever you're listening and share it on your social? Give me a tag at Katie Bulmer life. So I can give you a big thank you. You sharing it, you leaving your reviews on iTunes is the best possible compliment you can give. Hey, let's continue to hang out. We have a private community called Truth for Your 20s over on Facebook. So just go to groups, search Truth for Your 20s and come join the party.